Hey folks, welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, James Jordan, and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss Leviticus chapter 2 and the tribute offering. There are a couple of links in the description for you that are helpful articles on the book of Leviticus, as well as other books mentioned in this conversation. We really hope that you're sharpened by this conversation over this text. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Jordan, and also here with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from England. And today we're continuing in our study of the Levitical system of offerings. We've looked at uh, some of the general patterns in those offerings. We looked at uh, Leviticus in general. Uh, in the last episode, we talked about the first chapter of Leviticus and looked at the, uh, some of the specifics of what's called the whole burnt offering in traditional translations, but what is more accurately translated as the ascension offering. The, the Hebrew word olah is from a verb Allah that simply means to go up or to ascend. Uh, and that the word Olah is used for this particular offering. And that highlights the, the purpose of the offering, the meaning of it. The phrase whole burnt offering is accurate as a description of the offering because the entire animal is burned, but it's not an accurate translation of the term. And we have a, same, a similar terminological issue with the second chapter and the offering that's described, prescribed there. Traditionally, chapter two is about the grain offering. Uh, the reason why it's translated as grain offering is because the material that's used for this offering is uh, grain products of various kinds in various forms. But the term that's used here does not mean grain, doesn't have anything to do with grain. The Hebrew word is mincha, and a mincha, outside of the liturgical context Leviticus, a mincha is a gift. And specifically, it's a gift that's offered as tribute from an inferior to a superior. Uh, to somebody, it's offered from somebody who's in a subordinate position of some sort, who's trying to win the favor, often to win the favor of a superior. Um, it appears, for example, in Genesis uh, 32, I think, when Jacob is re-entering the land. Uh, just before he re-enters the land, he divides up his flocks and herds into different groups, sends them ahead of him, on toward Esau. He knows that Esau has come out with 400 men and he's worried what Esau might want to do. And he's trying to pacify Esau. The last time he saw Esau, Esau was trying to kill him. And so he sends minkot, plural of mincha. He sends gifts, tribute ahead uh, to try to win the favor of Esau. Uh, the same word is used in the historical books when it talks about various uh, nations that are subdued to Israel and as a as homage to the kings of Israel and Judah, as homage to David, for example, uh, they send gifts, and those gifts are described as mincha. So, for many years at Biblical Horizons, we use the phrase tribute offering or tribute to describe this because that better describe that better translates the word that's used. Although grain offering again is accurate as a description of what's happening because there are various kinds of grain that are being offered. Uh, Leviticus too, I think. I would say, divides up into four sections. The first section is about a tribute offerings of flour, so grain that's been ground into flour. And then in verses 4 through 10, you have 
a series of different kinds of grain offerings that have been baked. So this is flour that has been mixed with oil and perhaps other ingredients baked into cakes or wafers of some sort. And then those are presented. That's the uh, kind of offering that's being described in verses 4 through 10. And then verses 11 through 13 in chapter 2 is kind of an interruption of the, of the prescription for the tribute offering. It gives us rules, gave Israel rules about what should and should not be included in the tribute offering. It prohibits honey and leaven from being included. Uh, honey, uh, first fruits of honey were uh, required. Leavened bread was used in certain feasts, but no leaven and no honey was permitted to be on the altar. That was not allowed to be turned to smoke and become a soothing aroma to the Lord. So that's what's proscribed. That's what's prohibited. And on the other hand, in verse 13, we have a rule about the inclusion of salt. Salt has to be included in all of the tribute offerings. Anytime an Israelite brought grain in whatever form, it has to be salted. Uh, so verses 11 through 13 have a couple of rules about ingredients. And then in verse, verses 14 through 16, you go back to a third form of a tribute offering. In this case, it's not flour. It's not uh, uh, grain that's been baked into bread or cakes of some sort, but rather it's grain, uh, and particularly the early ripened grain, that's been placed in the fire, roasted, and so you have roasted grains that are presented to the Lord, and the, there's a, a brief description of the rite for presenting those offerings to the Lord. So you basically have three larger categories of offering, flour offerings, baked offerings, and roasted grain, the second of those is subdivided in various ways depending on the kind of preparation that's made and particularly the, the kind of cooking apparatus you use. Some uh, tribute offerings are from the oven. Some tribute offerings are from the griddle. Some tribute offerings are from the pan. And there are slightly different ways of describing how those are supposed to be prepared. So that's a um, kind of an overview of the, of the uh, chapter. Let me say w one other thing about the the uh, tribute offering um, and the specifics here that before we, we before we plunge into it a bit more each of these uh, includes grain of course it never none of them include raw grain none of them are uh, simple offering of harvested grain the grain has been processed in some way it's been ground into flour it's been ground into flour and baked into cakes it's been roasted in the fire uh, and it's not simply the grain product that's brought, but the grain product is brought along with oil. Uh, oil is sometimes said to be poured over the flour or the cakes. Interestingly, in one case, in the case of a uh, wafers that have been made in an oven, verse 4, they are anointed with oil. That's an interesting usage. So each of them has uh, not just um, a grain, uh, some kind of grain, form of grain, but also oil and then you have incense in addition to that. Uh, so you have three components of the uh, tribute offering. It's not just the grain, but you have these other things that are added to the grain offering. And this is uh, what you were alluding to last time, Jim, when you talked about the components of uh, the tabernacle. Grain, incense, oil, yeah. translates into showbread, altar of incense, and lampstand. 19th century German evangelical named Kurtz. 
has a book on the sacrificial system, and he has a chapter called the the tabernacle erected in on the altar, where he discusses Leviticus two and makes that point in a lot of detail, which is where I've got it from. It may be available online. Oh. I'd encourage uh, I encourage listeners to look it up online. K U R T Z Kurtz. Yeah. And it's sacrifices and offerings in ancient Israel. Does that sound right? Something like that. that. And uh, I I believe that you can find it in electronic form. And there was a a fairly recent reprint. Uh, Maybe Kriegel Books put it out. Um, Yeah, Kriegel was the one that did it. Yeah. So so if you put the the last week's discussion together with this, we talked last week, I I alluded to Mary Douglas's idea that the, the priests are kind of building up a tabernacle within the altar with fire, wood, and then the animal, the animal representing the worshiper or a priest entering into the presence of God. And now those, those, um, uh, those animal offerings, in addition to that, you have the tribute offering that has to be included with the ascension offering. And so now this animal is entering into the fire along with all the different components of the holy place. It's like he's entering into a holy place um, or he's entering into... A, an altar sanctuary along with all the gifts and, and uh, equipment needed to uh, function in the holy place. And so, the, I mean, the, the practical point of that would be to again highlight the fact that what's happening in the offering is that the Lord is providing a way for the lay Israelite who can never go into the tabernacle itself. It's a way for him to enter into the tabernacle through this representative animal who enters into a kind of quasi-tabernacle setting within the altar. So that that, uh, reinforces the symbolism that the worshiper is drawing near into the Lord's house through the animal uh, in the the offerings. You mentioned earlier that although it's very strictly prohibited to bring leaven with the offerings at this point, we later on see on certain occasions, particularly the Feast of Pentecost, that there is leaven added to the meal offering. The other interesting detail about this chapter is this is where we'd expect to have instructions on drink offerings as well but we don't find that here um what can we say about the situation in which this is given is this is that a mission is the distinction between offerings meal offerings with leaven and those without is that something that relates to um, redemptive historical themes that they're within the wilderness at the moment so they can't have wine and that is added once they get into the land and also that that period of cutting off the leaven of Egypt is that associated with the prohibition of bringing leaven with the sacrifices Um, and then later on that can be added in at a certain occasion I don't think that uh, the uh Leavened bread is put on the altar. Where where is that? Is that in? Uh... I'm thinking of Leviticus twenty five. Um... There's leavened bread as part of the feast, but it's not yeah. it's not added to the Four altar. Three rather. Yeah. I think it's waved before the Lord, yeah. but I don't think. Oh, it's, okay. I don't think it's put on the altar and burned up as food for God. Well, I think you're in the, you're you're thinking along the right track, Alistair. I think the the absence of leaven is puts the altar offerings in a kind of continuous 
uh, unleavened bread situation, which is a, uh, a situation of cutting off the old and beginning a new leavening. But uh, the new leavening takes place outside the altar, as it were. And I think you're right, too, that the, uh, if I'm remembering rightly, the libations begin to be, are, are, begin to be described uh, and, and required when we get to Numbers. Uh, numbers 15 is what I'm looking at. But Numbers 15 is looking ahead to when Israel enters the land. Yeah. And then it says, uh, well, verse 2 says, When you enter the land, you're about to live. Uh, I'm giving you and make an offering by fire to the Lord or a bridal food to the Lord, an ascension or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or, and so on. You present your tribute offering in verse 4, and you should prepare wine for libation, one-fourth of a hen with the burnt offering for a sacrifice. So the, um, the addition of wines does seem to be connected with entry into the, into the land. And um, so I, th I think you were trying to get Jim to say, well, yeah, obviously it's a from bread to wine kind of sequence, that while they're in the wilderness, they're not yet in the land where the Lord will give them vineyards that they haven't planted He'll bring them into the rest of the land, the Sabbath rest of the land, and that's when the wine will be poured out. I don't think there, I don't think there are libations described in Leviticus. I may be mistaken, but I think that begins to be introduced there in Numbers, and it's specifically connected to offerings made once they're in the land. And I wonder, too, if there's something about some of the similar kind of reasoning with the prohibition of honey. I don't think honey was ever placed on the altar, but... Honey is a symbol of the abundance of the land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so when you make an offering, uh, it's as if you're ritually uh, removed from the land, back in the wilderness, back in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so that you can make a re-entry, as it were, into the land, so you can make a begin again to grow the leaven that will be fulfilled at Pentecost. You're back to square one. Right. Now, the very first occasion mentioned earlier that we encounter any sort of offering of this kind within scripture is Cain's offering um how can how can our theology of the um, tribute offering help us to understand why Cain's offering was not accepted and what would have made it acceptable Cain's offering is not made on top of an ascension offering or any other kind of blood offering. Uh, he doesn't bring a confession of guilt of any sort. Um, he simply brings a gift to God. So the language that's used in the passage there is that Cain brings a gift. Um, he doesn't bring a confession of sin and a gift on top of that. So you can't bring a Mencon by itself. Yeah. Are you are you suggesting that Cain was a Roman Catholic, bringing bringing his the product <laughs> of his works without having them based on a substitutionary sacrifice? Sounds like it sounds like a merit theology. <laughs> I uh, I'm not sure I want to accuse Roman Catholics of that, but uh, I'll let you do that, Peter. <laughs> Peter says that that would be Roman Catholic. <laughs> I was going to add, uh, to, in terms of the terminology, I think both Cain's offering and Abel's offering are called minka. Yeah. Neither one is an ascension offering. Uh, ascension offerings don't come into the picture until we get to Noah. Right. And then other offerings don't come into the picture until we get to Sinai. Uh, there aren't any peace offerings until you get to Sinai. There aren't any uh, 
purification or trespass offerings until you have a tabernacle. You don't need them until you have a tabernacle because it's all about maintaining the tabernacle. Yeah, I so, used to know that. Yeah, <laughs> I learned it from you. Uh, the, so yeah, they're both they're both minka, but I think it, it's a it's a fair question to ask. You know, is this just a divine entrapment? You know, God doesn't give any instructions for offerings, and then Cain, poor Cain, he's doing his best. You know, bringing bringing his vegetables and his. Uh, his uh, farm products and offering them to the Lord, and then the Lord shoots them down and doesn't accept them. And I, I think the a part of the answer to that is that I think there's a, there's an implicit guidance or instruction about the nature of s- sacrifice that's given in God's own initial sacrifice. So it's a commonplace of patristic interpretation. It's a commonplace of interpretation right up to to uh, Jonathan Edwards that uh, the Lord offered the first animal sacrifice outside of Eden. Uh, he got animal skins. You could say he spoke the animal skins into existence by fiat. But no, I think it's more, it's uh, the way to read it is that the Lord himself sacrificed an animal to make animal skins as a covering for Adam and Eve. And so there's a implied instruction there. If you want the covering that it makes you acceptable to God, instead of the fig leaves, you need to have this kind of covering. It needs to be on the basis of a death of an animal. Um, or um, if you want to symbolically enter past the flaming sword of the cherubim into back into the garden and commune with God, uh, you have to do that through an animal because that's, that's what the Lord did. So I think that's setting a pattern uh, that uh, Cain doesn't follow. Abel does follow. Um, I think uh, Jim's description is correct that it's uh, you have a, a basis of a substitutionary animal that's uh, dying uh, for the sake of forgiveness, and then any gifts are always up above and beyond that on top of that offering. Uh, but uh, within within Genesis, it seems like you've got an implicit instruction about sacrifice, as you have implicit instruction about marriage. We love we love Jonathan Edwards for that, and and many other things. He got a lot of things right. Well, who messed it up then? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I wonder where that falls out. Um, Maybe it doesn't. Maybe maybe people say that right along. But I think if, my guess is that if you said that to, to uh, your average evangelical pastor, you know, the first sacrifice was the animal skins. You would say, oh, that sounds allegorical to me. But then you say Jonathan Edwards said it, and they would say, they would bow and, and, and kiss your feet. <laughs> is there then a corollary between uh, Cain's offering and the fig leaves? I thought of that as I was saying it. I've never thought of that before, so I would have to... <laughs> Yes. Uh, Jim is saying yes. There's a correlation between the the offering of Cain and the fig leaves, the offering of Abel and the animal skins. It's a proper offering. Yeah. So that that correlation, I think, Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards said so. <laughs> <laughs> or we can we can assume he must have said so. Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting and important about the uh, tribute offering is uh, I made this point before, but I didn't develop it. Uh, the the tribute offering is always modified grain. It's never simply what springs from the ground. The same thing is true, of course, for the libations. You don't bring grapes. You bring wine, which is aged and glorified grapes, and aged and glorified by human skill and human labor. So the same thing is happening with the, with the tribute offerings. They're always grain, but they're always grain that's been modified. They're never simple, simply a natural product, but they're a cultural product. 
And that's what's being brought to the altar. And that's one of the reasons why the theology of the tribute offering uh, moves into a theology of vocation or a th theology of culture, a theology of labor. Um, this is part of what uh, I think Kurtz is getting at. He, he makes this point that it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's always something that's been modified by human work. What God wants uh, us to offer in our worship is not simply to return to Him what He's brought to us. He wants us to mimic Him in transforming what He gives us and offer it back to Him glorified. The same is true in chapter 1, though. How so? Well, the animals are all modified by knife and fire. If, if you put something in fire, you cannot get it back. Huh. You know, if you cut something up, you can put it back together conceptually, but if you put something in fire, you can't put it back together again. Mm -hmm. And uh, the animals are not only cut up, which would make it hard to put them back together again. You don't cut an animal up and bring the pieces to God. You cut them up and put them in fire. Mm -hmm to bring them to God, and the fire transforms them into a new form. Yeah. That makes them something different. Yeah, yeah. and in the light of that, I, one of the uh, things I noticed, I've been working on Leviticus 2 recently for Sunday school, and the sequence of the different grain offerings or tribute offerings uh, has to do with their proximity to fire. You have a grain offering of flour in the first section, along with oil and its incense. You have grain offerings that have been baked in some kind of baking in, uh, in instrument, an oven or a pan. So it's, it's, medi it's mediated fire, it's heat, it's not put directly in the fire. But when you get to the end of the chapter, these are grains that have been put directly in the fire. In fact, it, it says that di directly in verse 14, bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire. So the, the, there seems to be a progression in the course of the chapter moving from something that's not baked or, or fired at all uh, through something that passes through a, a mediated fire uh, to something that's directly in the fire. I don't have any theory of that, but it does seem to be a progression toward, toward fire, um, toward, a, toward a modification by fire. And then, all, of course, all of them are going to be burned on the altar, so they'll go through that, that uh, more complete transformation that you're talking about. We've discussed the drink offerings to some extent, but when we think about these particular offerings, the one thing that they would very clearly bring to mind for many um, Christian readers are the celebration of the supper with bread and wine. The fact that we have to produce those things through our own um, cultural labor and our own transformation of the things of this earth. How... Um, we read this chapter, I think it can, the relationship between this particular um, offering and the previous ascension offering, I think it can help us with a theology of the supper as well. We aren't dealing with a theology of the supper that arises purely in a fresh work of God from the New Testament. It's drawing upon Old Testament roots not just in the celebration of the Passover, but also in things like the um, tribute offering and the drink and the meal offerings, that these things in their different char character are also taken up in our celebrations in the New Covenant. 
One particular aspect of that in Leviticus 2 is the introduction of the idea of a memorial portion. Uh, that, that terminology is not used in chapter 1. Yeah. Uh, it's used elsewhere in Leviticus, but uh, it's with the, with the tribute offering that you have the idea that there's a, uh, uh, the, the priest scoops up a handful of the, the flour, for example, uh, and there's oil in it, all of the incense, and that's what goes on the altar. And then the, you, have, uh, you, you have this distinction between what, what's put on the altar and, and rema a remainder that's left for the priests uh, that becomes a most holy, uh, most holy food for the priest that only the priest can eat. So that, that the notion of memorial, it's, that appears, as uh, we've often discussed, it appears for the first time in uh, Genesis 9 with the, the rainbow. Genesis 9 with the rainbow is the memorial of the covenant. There it's, it's explicit that the Lord is the one who's looking at the rainbow, remembering his covenant, and uh, not, um, not again cursing the earth with a flood. When we get to Leviticus and we have a memorial portion of an offering that's placed on the altar, um, that, that points in the same direction. The memorial portion is not the portion that is left, it's not reserved, as it were, in, uh, on the, uh, next to the altar so that the priest can contemplate it and remember the provision of an That's the part that's put on the altar. The memorial is the part that goes to God as a memorial to Him. And that feeds into the theology of Eucharistic memorial. Uh, the anamnesis of the Lord's Supper is not primarily about the gathered congregation remembering Jesus. That we do that, and we ought to. But the main purpose of the uh, the memorial of the supper, <clears throat> or a prayer that's an uh, that's a um, that's a memorial before God, is to remind Him of what He's done for us in Christ, and to fulfill the promises He's made to us in Christ, to bring to completion all the things that are yes and amen in Christ. Uh, and the the, the uh, tribute offering. Um, supports that that understanding of the memorial the Eucharistic memorial that's very true I want to I want to uh, elaborate one other point I was making then the tribute offering represents human labor uh, in a sense so do the animal offerings because you're bringing an animal that you've taken care of you've invested in you've fed and so on but I uh, the tribute offering highlights this in a way that the animal offerings don't and I think uh, that's uh, particularly evident when you when you stop and think about uh, where the where the differences are between the different forms of the tribute offering. What makes them different? They're not different in what happens to them once they get to the tabernacle. Uh, the ritual is virtually the same in every case, with very slight differences. It always involves a memorial portion placed on the altar, the reservation of the rest of the minka to the priests. What uh, where the, the accent uh, is on what happens before it ever comes to the tabernacle. Uh, what the, the preparation is down, done outside, uh, the, the grain is ground into flour, not at the tabernacle, but at home. Uh, the cakes are baked in an oven or uh, wafers made on a griddle at home, and then you bring them to the tabernacle. The grains are roasted at home, and then they're brought to the tabernacle. So all the preparations are done and the different forms of preparation are done outside of the sanctuary. And then when you get to the sanctuary, the same kinds of things are being done with each of these different swords. So I think uh, that distribution of, uh, of work, uh, the trans uh, I guess put it this way, Jim was talking about the transformation of the animal into smoke on the altar. 
that happens at the, the, the dismemberment of the animal and the transformation into smoke happens in the, in the sanctuary. Uh, for the tribute offering, much of the transformation is happening before you ever get to the sanctuary. A lot of the modification is doing there. So I think, again, for that reason, it represents uh, the work of the worshiper in a way that the animal offerings don't. Yeah, that's good. So, so the liturgical implication of this for Christians would be, uh, Jim has made this point uh, either this week or in the last episode, that uh, a, a worshiper, a Christian worshiper comes into the Lord's presence offering himself as living sacrifice, offering himself in song, in prayer, in confession. But a worshiper also comes in uh, offering his works, and that uh, would can take the form of, of, a, of an offering taken up within the service, should take the form of an offering taken up in the service. But I think the, the theology that the tribute offering gives us is that there's a, uh, what we're offering in those offerings uh, is the product of our labors. Again, we're called to transform the world and offer that transformed world back to God. And that's what's happening in the liturgy. If we have an, if we have an offering, it's an offering of the world glorified uh, to the Lord. I think it can be helpful when we're thinking about rites like this to consider some of the specific iterations that we encounter of them and see some of the differences in the way that they were performed and that can help us to understand the usual features. One of the cases that I've found helpful in understanding the um, tribute offering is the case of the test of jealousy that we find in Numbers 5 where it was offered without oil and without frankincense and it's described as something for the sake of remembrance, to bring iniquity to remembrance and it's carried out in much the same way with the priest taking a handful of the offering as a memorial portion, burning it on the altar, and afterwards the woman is made to drink the water of judgment. And that, again, I think it ties in with our celebration of the supper in different ways, where we are tested as the bride, but there's the presumption that we will be found as righteous, we will be blessed. It's the cup of blessing that we drink, not the cup of judgment. But that particular shift of the right, removing the oil and the frankincense, can maybe help us to understand what the oil and the frankincense generally intend to convey. And also the right more generally, that it brings things to mind, that it is a performance that um, brings us into God's presence so that we are um, seen, as it were, brought to his mind on the basis of a previous ascension offering, things like that or on the basis of our own sinfulness, that we were brought into his presence in order to be judged and assessed. Yeah, you have the same kind of variation when, uh, with a sin offering of grain. Jim mentioned this in the last episode, that there are occasions when somebody is uh, too poor even to bring a bird, they can bring a, a purification or sin offering of grain. But that doesn't include... Uh, oil or frankincense, I think. It's, I think it's just a grain product by itself. So there are other cases where those things are excluded. And I think that's, I think that is a helpful, a helpful way of thinking about uh, thinking through the implications of these different offerings is to see the offering as a system, which means that if you have deviations, similar, similar rituals, but deviations within those rituals, then those are going to be particularly noteworthy because they'll, they'll illumine both 
both of the rituals, both the rituals that include the oil and the frankincense and those that don't are being interpreted. Uh, the, the two rites are being are interpreting one another. Jim, you wanted to make a comment about the, um, the fact that the, the tribute offering is a glorification of uh, creation, not simply a re-offering of creation. Well, yeah, I, um, I don't remember quite what the context was for my comment. So Alistair had those interesting things to say. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that uh, you have the story of the um, talents and uh, the one man who uh, has one talent. He says, I knew you were a harsh taskmaster, and I, so I buried my talent. I didn't do anything with it. The one talent wasn't multiple multiplied it all and so he's judged the man with five talents puts his talent out it leaves his hands um, he does something very risky and then he receives ten back uh, the man with two talents again he lets them go he does something very risky and he receives four back. So there's death and resurrection in those cases, and yet what what is um, what is brought to God is something that has gone through that process of uh, death and resurrection and uh, multiplication in time in the world, uh, not simply something that's that was given to start with and given back to God. So again, it's that you you lose your life in order to gain it, right? Um, or it's the same thing. Bread upon the waters, and then you receive the uh, receive it back after many days. So you yeah. you let it go. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.